space, the final frontier. These are the episodes of the Cheap Astronomy Podcast, its self-imposed mission to talk about strange new worlds, to discuss new life and new civilizations, to cheaply go where no podcast has gone before. Dear Cheap Astronomy, how do phases work? There is much debate about whether phasers rely on electromagnetic radiation, since on the telly and in the movies, phaser beams are always visible. This might be plausible behaviour for a hand phaser in atmosphere, but not for ship-to-ship phaser battles in the vacuum of space. A beam of light in a vacuum should just move in a straight line with no sideways diffraction, so unless you are directly in the line of the beam, it should be invisible to you. Also, the beam should move at the speed of light, so you should not be able to track its motion across the screen from gun muzzle to target. But we could blame all that on a bit of cinematic license, because it does seem very clear from Star Trek lore that phasers really do fire light beams. Lasers and laser pistols are mentioned in a few episodes of the original series, before evolving into phasers in later episodes. And phasers became standard issue throughout the next generation and later series. According to early script notes, the word phaser is shorthand for photon maser. Masers, just like lasers, are real technology in common use today, where maser is just an acronym for microwave amplified by stimulated emission of radiation. In other words, a maser is just a particular type of laser, which operates in microwave light frequencies, unlike standard lasers, which operate in optical light frequencies. Thus, in all important respects, a maser functions via the manipulation of photons. So specifying that a Star Trek weapon is a photon maser seems a rather unnecessary elaboration. But it's best not to dwell on such details when exploring fictional technologies. If we accept that a phaser is basically a powerful focused light beam, we can go on to explore the physical basis of its destructive properties – Two factors define the potentially destructive power of light beams – wavelength and intensity. Wavelength is what determines light energy, that is, the energy carried by each photon. Again, it must be said it's a bit puzzling that Star Trek tells us photon masers are more advanced weaponry than optical lasers. After all, optical light has more energetic photons than microwave light, and hence you'd think optical light would provide the basis for a more destructive weapon. But you've also got to consider intensity. Intensity is a measure of how bright visible light is, or how hot infrared light is, or how ionising gamma-ray light is. If we think of light as waves, intensity is the amplitude, or the height, of those waves. Or, if we think about light as photons, intensity is photon density, that is, how many photons are squeezed into one narrow beam. Either way you look at it, if you want to increase the intensity of your light beam, you use amplification and concentration. But once again we are back with the problem of why the heck you would want a photon maser. If you concentrate and amplify microwaves, what you will get is a microwave oven. If you are in the middle of a firefight with a Klingon warbird, You really don't want your life depending on a microwave oven. 
if you amplify and concentrate optical light, at least you get a laser, with which you might manage to annoy the Klingons by shining it in their eyes. But if you want to take the Klingons out, what you want to do is to concentrate and amplify gamma rays. And, fortunately, there really is such a technology, sometimes called a gazer or a grazer, that is, a gamma-ray laser. While an optical laser, or a maser, results from excited electrons dropping back to their ground state and releasing a photon in a very precise and predictable way, a grazer results from excited nucleons dropping back to their ground state. A nucleon is a proton or a neutron, the things that make up an atomic nucleus, and for a nucleon to shift from its excited state back to its ground state, it has to release one mother of a photon, that is, a gamma-ray photon. In 21st century science, we have managed to produce small-scale grazer emissions from heavy elements like hafnium and tantalum. If we ever manage to weaponize this kind of stimulated emission, then a grazer-enabled Starfleet vessel is definitely not something you would want to get on the wrong side of. Perhaps Gene Roddenberry just got his PHs and his GRs mixed up. Hello, Steve. What are you doing? Oh, hi, Bridget. I'm just reading this book on astrophotography. Are you going to duct tape your smartphone onto Sky Station One again? Well, of course I could do that. After all, cheap astronomy has shown it to be an effective functional solution in repeated trials. Yes, I know. You keep telling me about it. But according to this book, you can buy devices from dedicated astronomy supplies now that give you dazzling image clarity as well as pinpoint tracking slew. That sounds very expensive. Well, I know. But sometimes I wonder... Is saving money the only thing that matters in amateur astronomy? Oh, come on, Steve. It's not just about money. What about these dedicated astronomy suppliers? Where are they? Won't you have to drive across town, find somewhere to park, and then find their shop? Well, there is the Internet. Oh, yes, the Internet. But are you going to know what you're buying? You'll have to research what's available. That's very time-consuming as well. Well, I suppose so. And then, when you do get something delivered, well, Steve, you're going to have to read the instruction manual. Hey, I don't do manuals. Well, if you want to do astrophotography. Hey, where are you going now, Steve? I think I left some duct tape in the back room. Dear Cheap Astronomy, how do shields work? Here's what we know about Star Trek shields. They are generally called deflector shields, implying that they deflect rather than absorb the energy of a weapon fired upon them. Nonetheless, such shields are progressively weakened under a continued assault, unless you divert power away from other ship system to replenish them. Shields also operate with a particular frequency, suggesting that they have some kind of electromagnetic nature. Although it's never actually stated, perhaps because it sounds a bit too pedestrian, the power that drives a starship's systems, 
and hence also drives its shields, is probably electricity. After all, the standard response to a starship taking a hit is that all the lights dim. So, even though the power source may be dilithium crystals or whatever, the power medium that is generated by that source is still just plain old electricity. In deference to anticipated technological advances in the 23rd century, we might assume starship power will be DC rather than AC, assuming that we are not still running steam-driven turbines by then. Beyond that, how shields might work is not clear. Some off-screen commentators claim their protective effect is due to the manipulation of gravitons, which for anyone in the 21st century equates to pseudoscientific hand-waving. There is no evidence to indicate that gravitons exist, let alone a plausible rationale as to why a theoretical particle that mediates the force of gravity would be useful in deflecting a phaser blast. A more plausible line of thinking comes from the Enterprise series, a prequel to all the other Star Trek series, including the original series. In the Enterprise series, the NX-01 Enterprise did not yet have shield technology, but it could polarise its hull plating. Apparently, this polarisation realigned the molecular structure of the hull plates to make them stronger. It was never explained why that stronger configuration was not just locked in permanently during the hull materials manufacture, but it's generally best not to dwell on such details. The point of the Enterprise NX-01 example is that a ship's hull deserves a lot more prominence when considering a starship's overall defence capabilities. A number of Star Trek plots suggest that once your shields are gone, you are pretty much finished. But it is not good battle tactics to make the integrity of your starship and the survival of your crew entirely reliant upon something that you may only think to switch on now and again. Back in the real world of 21st century technology, there are various forms of magnetic shielding we can create in a laboratory setting, which are powered by electricity and which might be one day usefully employed to deflect harmful cosmic rays from penetrating a spaceship's hull. However, most weapons that we can currently manufacture today let alone those we might imagine for the 23rd century, could easily plough straight through such a magnetic shield. The same weaponry, though, would struggle to penetrate a one-inch thick hull made of a dense metal, let alone two, three, or six inches. Matter-based shielding can very effectively protect you from most ballistic projectiles, as well as a range of speculative electromagnetic weapons, and probably a range of wildly imaginary weapons that employ mesons, bosons, tachyons, or whatever-ons. So, even though we should acknowledge we await two centuries of unimaginable technological advancement, it still strains belief to accept that some intangible quasi-electric shield thingy that doesn't even block visible light could ever hope to match the defensive capabilities of a few inches of good old solid matter. You can keep all your magnets and your plasmas and your subatomic wibbly-wobblies. Matter will take a bullet for you in the 23rd century just as well as it does in the 21st. Fortunately, there is another off-screen suggestion for how shields might work. Shields might actually be based upon replicator technology. So, as the Klingon fleet approaches, you tell your replicator to create a six-inch thick layer of transparent aluminum around your ship. Now that is a shield in anybody's language. Music